Hi everyone and welcome back to the Risk and Regulation Rundown podcast after our short summer break. I'm Andrew Strange, your regular host, and as usual we're recording remotely, so please note this might impact on our sound quality. In today's episode we're discussing inclusion and diversity following some significant regulatory papers on this topic published in July. I'm delighted to be joined by Brenda Trenoden, a PwC partner who leads our inclusion and diversity client business and is also a former global chair of the 30% Club, which campaigns to increase gender diversity at board and senior management levels. Also joined by Jazz Campbell, a senior manager in our internal audit team who works with a range of clients on diversity and inclusion. So Brenda, before we get to the specific detail of the regulator's recent proposals in this space, can you just start by setting the scene for us in terms of the journey that both financial services regulators and firms have been on over the past few years? What angle are regulators approaching this from and what stage are most firms at in their inclusion and diversity journey? Well, thanks, Andrew. Um, You've asked a lot of questions there. We try and, and tackle them. So I guess, first of all, it's important to understand that Over the past, um, well, many years, I've been looking at this really wearing two hats. So firstly, before I joined PwC, um, I was in banking and I was a senior manager myself under the SM and and C regime with all of the responsibility that comes with that regulated role. And secondly, as you mentioned, I spent many years working with chairs, CEOs and investors to improve gender diversity in my voluntary roles. Um, particularly as global chair of the 30% club. So as a result, I took part in many discussions with FS firms and regulators, really with the view to, you know, widening the talent pool, improving culture, and ultimately diversity of thought, and encouraging appropriate challenge and, and that speak up culture to mitigate risk. So, you know, it's about changing the behavior of firms for the better. And, you know, it's also about financial inclusion. So we call it inclusion by design. You you can't design financial products and services for a broad range of customers unless you truly understand their needs. And so without having that direct experience or insight into those needs, meaning that that you need that diverse workforce, you can't do it. Um, So we've heard lots of speeches, you know, from people like Mark Carney and Andrew Bailey and more recently from Nikhil Ratti um, talking about the importance of this. And I guess I would say that whilst over the years it's not been as high a priority as I would like to see, it's definitely been steadily moving up the agenda. You know, we've had um, great campaigns that have helped to drive this, like the 30% Club campaign, government-sponsored initiatives like Davies and the Hampton Alexander Reviews, the Women in Finance Charter, really importantly, um, Alison Rose's review, and then the Invest in Women Code, and of course, gender pay gap reporting. And on top of that, you know, investors have been really pushing for more disclosure and, and progress. And I've had direct experience of that through the 30% Club Investor Group. Um, particularly the big pension funds have, have really been pushing this agenda. And now, you know, we've we've got the S in ESG really gaining traction and leading to even more calls for action. So, you know, I, I think those are the, those are the angles, and and that's the progress um, that I've been seeing. Hopefully, that that answers your questions. 
Yes, thanks, Brenda. And, and you're right, it has been moving up the agenda and, and there have been lots of speeches over the last few years. Uh, I guess now we finally have some concrete proposals, though. So the FCA, PRA and the Bank of England jointly published a discussion paper on diversity and inclusion in July. A few weeks after that, we had the FCA also consulting on a requirement for all listed companies to be more transparent about the diversity of their boards and their executive teams. So, Brenda, what, what's your overall take on those proposals and their likely impact? Well, first of all, I, I think it's fantastic that these proposals have come out and, you know, there's quite a lot in, in those papers, especially in the in the discussion paper. So, you know, I, I think it's going to lead to hopefully um, much more focus on the data, what kind of data needs to be gathered and, and the impetus for gathering gathering data. Also, better definitions and, you know, understanding of, of what we're looking for. So, you know, diversity of thought is, is quite a wide and, and ambiguous thing. I think better to be really clear on diversity demographics, diversity strands, um, you know, increased disclosure and reporting on progress. So, you know, really making companies understand that, that we can't just skate over this. This, this is something that everybody is, is expecting to see and, and why, you know, it's, it's really important. And ultimately all of this you know, really should force companies to realize that they need to devote time and resource because their stakeholders increasingly care about it. And of course, it will help to achieve better business outcomes. So maybe I'm being overly optimistic and, and having too much um, expectation around uh, around these, these papers, but, but those are certainly my, my hopes. And that optimism is allowed. I'm quite comfortable with that. So, so Jazz, optimistically, if I can bring you in here, I mean, what are your thoughts on the proposals, particularly from an internal audit perspective? Oh, thanks, Andrew. Um, so in terms of the proposals, um, this is necessary and extremely important. Um, I, the introduction of this paper is no accident. Um, and we've heard that, you know, over the last year, there's been a number of speeches that have come from the regulator with regards to the importance of inclusion and diversity. And I think with that and thinking about the internal audits role around that, you know, our FS code absolutely states that internal audits purpose is to protect the firm's assets, reputation and sustainability for the fear of being too professional here. Um, but really key to that is the culture and in the embedding of IND as it's, it's critical to enable this. Um, and internal audit have a key role to play in helping to measure the change. For example, through measuring the effectiveness of embedding their strategy, training and IND measures um, as an example of that. But I think it's also important to highlight here that, you know, internal audit can really um, leverage the um, engagement, the partnership, the role they have across the organisation to role model what we would expect to see around here. So, you know, how are, is the, within the internal audit function, how are we ensuring we've got the right workforce strategy, one that is diverse and inclusive, how individuals are trained um, in terms of the industry insights that are needed to help the organization address some of these key challenges. So I think the paper's timely, I think maybe overdue for some may think, but it's really, really um, critical that we do have some guidelines around around this to really help move the dial, because there's some great benefits that's going to come out of thinking differently in terms of how we run our businesses. Thanks, Jazz. And the cynic in me. So what progress are firms actually making? 
Since the spring of 2020, there has been a realisation from firms that there is more that can be done um, and as a result are wanting the support to understand whether the efforts that they are making is really hitting the mark. Um, there are some real good examples um, and the firms are thinking about, you know, how are the board engaging? Is leadership really um, working to promote um, as well as um, drive that inclusive culture that we're, we're seeking? Um, is there a clear strategy, um, an action plan? Um, and we've seen some really good examples where organisations have kind of started to think about the kind of the action plan around inclusion and diversity and how that aligns to their overarching strategy. Um, and a real big area is how um, this is being embedded in the people strategy and the talent pipeline and succession planning of the organisation. So we've seen some really, really good examples where organisations are really thinking about how they're weaving this into their operating model. Um, some challenges we're seeing is um, around GDPR and other regulated rules. For example, in Germany, there are very strict rules on a lot of useful um, IND information which can't be used. Um, so it's very easy for some global firms to kind of say, you know, given the restrictions, given our locations, we can't do um, things. However, you know, there is always that conversation around, well, okay, but what else can you do to have a, see what's going on and where you might need to put your efforts? Um, lack of internal communication. So this is a real common um, thing we see. And I'm going to quote um, Brenda here. You know, Brenda often talks about, you know, action over articulation. And we often see, and actually, it's really refreshing that kind of the organisations we speak to acknowledge that there is a lot of um, external communications around, you know, the IND commitment and how that aligns to the culture that, that the organisation is trying to drive, the pledges that have been signed up for. But actually, when you look and speak to um, people within the organisation, that is not um, obvious. So, you know, thinking about or having lack of um, internal communications, lack of engagement from and role modelling from senior leadership, and no clear plan of direction in terms of where the organisation is trying to get to are some of the key themes that we often come, um, come across when we're um, doing work in this space. Yeah, thanks, Jazz. And, and it feels like data is a huge part of meeting many regulatory requirements nowadays. So I'm guessing it has to be a, a key element of making a success out of these proposals too. Um, you know, Jazz, you referenced GDPR there, which I totally get. Brenda, you made some reference to data in one of your earlier questions. What sort of things should th firms be thinking about and what are some of the other data challenges? Brenda? That's a really good question, Andrew. <clears throat> and Jazz mentioned a number of these things. You know, we speak to clients about this every day, and every client is struggling around the data piece. I mean, number one, because most clients stretch across more than one legal jurisdiction. So the regulations are different in every legal jurisdiction around what you can and can't ask, as per Jazz's example about Germany. Also, you've got to factor in GDPR, which is different. You know, data privacy laws are different in every country. And of course, cultural nuances are different and even the relevance of what data you gather. So, so the, the jurisdiction piece is really important, but even backing up before that, I guess companies need to start with what data are you going to collect? Because different firms have different priorities. 
you shouldn't start with all diversity dimensions, you know, from the beginning. Really, it, it depends on what your priorities are. And perhaps, you know, setting a plan of we're going to start with these three strands or two strands, you know, and, and trying to get really good data there. And we're going to add over time. And, and that's certainly what, what we've done at PwC. I mean, the next important question is, are you going to gather that data as anonymized data or attributed data? So if it's anonymized, it'll give you a picture of the breakdown of your workforce, but you won't have the, the data to allow you to really start doing pay gap analysis, for example, or to set targets, you know, by certain business areas or, or, or you know, types of business. And more importantly, to be able to hold managers accountable for leading the change. So, you know, understanding which way you're going to gather it, attributed is, is clearly more difficult. Um, how you're going to gather it is the next question. You know, are you going to go out and email people specifically about this? Are you going to gather it at certain points in the year when you're going out to all the staff anyway? You know, most companies will look at gathering it when they employ people, but for their existing employees, they're going to have to go out and get it another way. Um, where will you store it? Who's going to see it? You know, and, and, and how, you know, how is that going to, going to impact, you know, what, what you're going to, to gather? Um, and then as, as Jazz mentioned, communication is incredibly important because none of this is going to work if you don't build trust and tell people why you're asking for it, what you're going to do with it, and report back afterwards with what you found, you know, being really honest about this is the picture and this is what we're going to do about it. And it takes time. When we started gathering data, our disclosure rates, you know, were, were not particularly high. Now we've got, I think, 100% disclosure rate on gender and 97% on ethnicity. But it took time and lots and lots of communication and action plans to build that trust. And then I mentioned the cultural nuances. You know, how do you ask and, and what sort of categories do you use? If you don't spend time thinking about that, that can really backfire as well. And then finally, the inclusion data, not just the diversity data. You know, this is something Jazz mentioned as well. Inclusion data is harder to gather, but that can be done through asking very specific questions in regular pulses or an engagement survey, or many of our clients are working with us to do inclusion insights assessments. So specific surveys asking about sentiment on fairness, belonging, trust, psychological safety, um, and then breaking that data down by diversity demographics. Because if you just look at the, the overall data, you don't get a sense of whether particular groups are feeling unhappy or marginalized and, and whether you need to take specific action. So unless you have that, it's very hard to develop a specific plan to address your issues. And I guess, you know, to another point that Jazz made, I heard a really funny expression yesterday about companies that were classify as watermelon companies, um, companies that are green on the outside in terms of all the virtue signaling and things that they're saying, but red on the inside in terms of real action. So I think it's really important when you, when you gather all this data to start showing that progress and holding people to account. 
and it's interesting in this conversation we started talking about sort of regulatory initiatives but it, it clearly broadens out into something far more important and, and much greater i mean i think firms recognize that it's the right thing to do and that having a diverse workforce and an inclusive culture is an important part for delivering for, for your customers and your staff and it does bring business benefits but brenda what are the broader benefits we're seeing and i suppose to some extent some of the challenges associated with that well, I'm, I'm really glad, Andrew, that you started with the benefits. And I think, you know, framing it in that way is, is important. Um, we like to say that, you know, inclusion and diversity is, is a, isn't a problem to solve, but it's a huge and untapped opportunity to seize. And to that end, a couple of years ago, PwC, together with the 30% Club and a small group of, of progressive companies, got together and gathered some case studies and launched an initiative called Are You Missing Millions, which was really looking at companies that have taken an outside-in approach to, um, to diversity. And we, we started with a gender lens, but we're really broadening it out now to look at, at much you know, wider diversity dimensions. But thinking about you know, the, the diverse makeup of your customer base, and you know, taking an enterprise-wide approach to think about you know, how should we be looking at this from product and service design, marketing, communications, supply chains, risk management, and what opportunities are we missing by not looking at it this way? So you know, we had retail companies, we had you know, financial services firms, and many of them you know, came through examples about when they'd broken down and looked at their customers this way, and really tried to get under the skin of what their customer needs were based on diversity dimensions, they did find they were missing opportunities. And when they addressed it, it did open up millions of, of pounds or of dollars. So, you know, I, I think the, the, the forward way of looking at this is, is really about that opportunity and that commercial benefit. You know, it's not just about widening the talent pool and internal representation. There is, is money to be made by really putting this lens across an entire business. So I really hope companies are gonna to start to see this. Well, Brenda, I mean, one of the privileges of hosting this podcast is I get to, to hold some senior PwC staff to account here. So um, I'm assuming we're not a watermelon company. So what has PwC done? And what, what advantages have we actually seen from our actions on this? Well. We're definitely not a watermelon company, but you know we're definitely not the finished article either. And so I think it's it's really important to say that you know like everyone else, we're on the journey. But I'm really proud that you know we've we have been doing quite a lot for for a long time. So you know first of all, in terms of data and disclosure, as I mentioned earlier, we have been gathering data and we've really been improving our our disclosure rates. So you know we started reporting gender pay gap in 2014. In 2017, we started reporting ethnicity pay gap. And you know, we're not compelled to do that. We did that voluntarily. We've then broadened on to break down that ethnicity pay gap to, to get much more granular information. And this year in our 2021 annual report, we reported our socioeconomic pay gap as well. So you know, we're, we're really trying to be very transparent and to put all this information out there so that you know, our external stakeholders can hold us to account. Um, I think the other thing is, is you know, we do a lot of robust analysis, predictive analytics, and we set targets. So slowly, you know, we started with gender, we've added ethnicity, we're looking at disability and, and you know, moving through diversity dimensions. 
and we're holding our own you know, partners and our, our managers to account for really driving progress. Um, we've got a five-point action plan, and we report on that as well, very publicly. And once again, you know, we're, we're trying to show progress there. Um, so, you know, we, we we do spend time thinking about this. We do the the inclusion insight piece, um, and you know, I think we are progressing. But once again, we we've got work to do. I think, like everyone, this is this is a continuous journey. But it's it's about having the information being transparent about it and holding people to account. Absolutely, thank you. So Jazz, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with a range of topics that they, they've either been through and embedded into their businesses or they're acting on now, but it's always interesting to think about how these things interact with, with new issues such as this, this, this diversity and inclusion agenda. So, I mean, thinking about things like ESG and governance or as uh, Brenda referenced earlier on the senior manager regime, uh, how do these link into to, to the DNI agenda? I mean, they're, they're absolutely, and it's a really good question, um, Andrew, uh, are really key to embedding inclusion and diversity and creating that inclusive culture for all organisations. With the recent global events, um, you know, investors, shareholders, employees, future talent, customers um, are really holding um, organisations to account. They're really doing their research in terms of ensuring um, that what organizations stand for are aligned to what they stand for as individuals and key decisions before people even walk through the doors of some of these organizations are being made by you know what and how um, they're demonstrating the societal aspects of ESG and inclusion and diversity and some of the good um, uh, things that we've all already spoke about really sit within that societal piece you know, when you think about, you know, the workforce, um, yes, there's diversity um, uh, and inclusion. There's thinking about the well-being of, of our individuals. So there's a lot around engaging, caring um, and supporting everyone who works for the organization and also about developing um, you know how we're attracting how we're training and how we're retaining the talent. All of this absolutely sits within the S of the ESG. The tone from the top um, um, and leadership sits within our governance, our conduct and our SMR regime. And they are really, really critical to um, embedding um, the, the framework within the organisation. And it shouldn't be a framework. It should be the culture and how we do things. So they um, absolutely al aligns to it. Um, and we've seen really good examples, as I touched on earlier, where we're thinking about succession planning and talent pipeline. But also when you're thinking about the senior man manager regimes and those those certified roles, it's also about, you know, the functions and those that are coming up through those functions and what role modeling of the right inclusive behaviors are we demonstrating and how does that then play through in terms of the performance management um, um, and you know the, the progression of individuals through an organization so whilst they're regulatory and, and requirements there is also an element of it's the right thing to do and I, you can quickly see how 
through embedding this through the way you do things as an organization you can start to get a competitive um, advantage with your talent wanting to stay with you wanting to be innovative wanting to work with you to move the your organization to where you want to get to you know strengthening your governance and leadership helping to build that trust by engaging with you know your workforce so that they understand all that you're trying to do is to get the organization and the support that they provide the talent that they've got to the right place and with that will come benefits as well i think a key thing that brenda also touched on was kind of making sure that the risk management kind of framework absolutely has a lens on um, inclusion and diversity. And one of the key, key risks here, and I'm going to re refer back to um, Brenda's point around the watermelon kind of um, situation, is a reputational risk. You know, the Gen Z, the new generation coming up, the, the way people are thinking society, social media and things like that, if, if we're not really um, taking action on moving the dial in this space. There is a big, big reputational risk that organizations face. Um, and again, with embedding this into the management information that is going to that leadership, the leaders, and that we're using that to really act is really also important around identifying where the areas of improvement need to be made and taking action to address that. So, you know, those key um, regulatory kind of areas and initiatives, and I'm sure many other really do have a key role and are already playing a role in this and we just need to take a step back and think about how do we ensure that the ind agenda and the inclusive culture is incorporated within that excellent so i guess again a lot of our listeners are thinking about this and thinking about next steps so you know our current understanding is that the pra and fca plan to consult on, on more detailed proposals in the first quarter of 2022 uh, and then we're expecting a policy statement maybe around the third quarter of next year so depending on on how you define things we're probably a year or so away from having final rules on this um Given that, what, what's the one area that you would encourage firms to focus on over the next year so that they're in the best possible position to comply with these rules and benefit from the opportunities uh, going forward? And uh, Brenda, let me start with you. Sure. Thanks, Andrew. Well, there's an awful lot to do and it's very complex, but I would say, and I'm going to take senior leadership commitment as read, um, that's the eternal optimist in me. But I would say the data and the diagnostic piece is the area that companies have to start with. You know, every company is different. They have different culture. They're in a different situation. So you know, look and see what data you have and where are the gaps? What data do you need and, and how are you going to gather that? You know, Understand from whatever diagnostic you can do um, what your own opportunities and challenges are and set the priorities and you know really get working on establishing that baseline and and filling in the gaps because without understanding where you are and having the data to start with there's no way that you can start to address it so the data and the diagnostic ultimately self-awareness thank you jazz and for me, just to, to add on to that, I would start with um, thinking about the strategy and the alignment of this within your overarching organisational strategy. Um, you know, once you have that in alignment, it's a lot easier to address some of the um, underlying um, challenges that we often see. You know, if it's aligned to your strategy and goals and vision of the organisation, it's easier to get that senior leadership buy-in and commitment. 
it's easier when it comes to communicating internally as well as externally on why we are um, doing the things we're doing and what the benefits we expect to achieve coming out that it is. And then it's easier for individuals along with that data that um, Brenda has talked about um, to understand why we as an organisation are putting efforts in certain areas as opposed to others and the prioritisation of this. So for me, it really is about being very, very clear on, you know, your strategy, your IND strategy and vision and the action plan that you're going to put in place to um, um, embed that across your organisation. Jazz, Brenda, we could probably talk about this all day, but thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I think it's really interesting when you've got regulatory imperatives coming together with big business benefits and opportunities for firms. Uh, I hope our listeners have found some of these really fascinating insights and discussions today helpful. If you have enjoyed the conversation, please do subscribe to future episodes and don't forget to rate and review this series as it does help other people find us uh, and look out for our next episode next month. Thank you.